Hello, and welcome to the Babiaga Project. The Babiaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized here, folklore, and history. My name is Devin. I have a master's degree in American history and indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. And today we're talking sort of about the new year. So, but specifically New Year's resolutions. Yeah, so we're, we're using New Year's resolutions as a jumping off point to talk really about why you don't need a perfect body. <laughs> or more, yes. more specifically, why your body is already perfect. And New Year's resolutions often suck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the idea of resolutions that are you know, a a net positive in your life could maybe be reasonable and valid. Like, if you want to resolve to, like, read more or go on more walks yeah, that are, you know, before your curfew or whatever (laughs) other situation is going on currently with your pandemic experience, that's great. Yeah. But a lot of New Year's resolutions are hyper-focused on weight, and we Mm -hmm. are inundated with this there's you know all kinds of ads all kinds of products that are sold to us i've gotten about a million noom ads in the last oh my gosh it's so bad i don't know two weeks it's terrible but we thought that for this episode we take a little step back and ask why exactly are we so obsessed with being thin yes Like, why is this such a preoccupation in particularly North American society and to an extent in Europe? But it's a little less so there, I think. Not by a lot, but, you know. I I think there's, like, definitely, particularly in North America, a hyperfixation on it. Yes, certainly, yeah. And the idea that that's the only way to be healthy uh, so yes. even if you are you know seemingly doing everything right and aren't then that you're still not healthy and whether or not whether or not that historically has come from the medical community what the like basis for those kinds of things are and what where our conceptions of beauty and the worth that that has in our lives has come from. Right. Um, just so that, like, maybe we can think about what what we really do want out of this new year. Um, I did make some resolutions. Well, I made resolutions for the month of January. Nice. That I'm hoping will turn into habits that I can keep up. for the, But they're mostly about, you know, mental health and structuring my days in a time when I'm not really allowed to go outside. Exactly. And I, I think, actually... This is something that I sort of wanted to start the pod off with is this discussion of how much does weight actually have to do with health? Like, if you actually look (laughs) at the science surrounding this, is being, you know, quote unquote, overweight inherently this horrible, unhealthy thing that we've been told is going to kill us all? Yeah. And and the, the answer is... No, not really. Yeah, I think that this 
and I'll talk certainly about this more when we get to the later part of the history that we're talking about today, but the studies seem to be a little a little bit like blatantly conflating causal and corollary results. So right. things that like if you're just looking at the health of people who are over a certain weight, then like it might not actually be that their weight is causing those problems. It might be the opposite or it might be, you know, like related to accessibility issues, like, uh, right. you know, like structural I, things. I think that like is something that at a gym or like, if the the place is size inclusive or if they have acts you know if poverty is a major factor stress is a major factor societal issues well yeah and i think that's a lot of the issues is that a lot of people do gain weight as a result of say mm-hmm. illness or injury or from living in food deserts where they don't have access to healthy foods and it it's this situation where you're like, well, yes, this person is having problems with their health, but it's not because they gained weight. They gained weight because they had health problems yep. to begin with. So it's this very like chicken and egg scenario. And I think the other thing to really point out here is there's not the same stigma associated with any other type of unhealthy quote unquote behavior. Like, Drinking is glamorized, and we know that drinking is bad for us. Smoking is glamorized. Tanning, all kinds of things that are definitely bad for you, but no one is, there isn't the same like moral and aesthetic judgment added to it. Like, no one real, like, there's, there's some moralizing around drinking, but you know, by and large, let's be real, having, you know, Drinking is glamorized yeah. in basically all yeah. media. Especially out- so, especially outside of the U.S. Um, yes. Is the thing that I've noticed. And, like, even within the U.S., right? Oh, like, there's moralizing yeah. around it, but it's still the, seen as this, like, oh, like, you're drinking a lot at a party or, like, you know, going out for a bunch of no. drinks and that's fun <laughs> and that's a good time and, like, that's how you know that yeah. you're living and, you know... <laughs> it, it's yeah. this very um so, so i do just want to really start this out with somebody somebody's weight does not necessarily correlate with actual markers of health like blood pressure and organ function and mm-hmm. it's really none of our business yeah. because the only person who actually will know that is that person and the doctor they've seen so Really, all of this stuff about weight is an aesthetic value. It's based on what we think is nice looking. And that's changed over time. Yeah, exactly. And like, it, yeah, it really has. And the other thing that I would also like to point out is that like, there has been an issue in the perception of people throughout history Mm -hmm. because of the way that some history has been like shared with the public so 
when we think about like fashion history or vintage clothing, right? Um, there, there are very specific people's clothes that survive. Yes, long enough for that to be like visible to the public or to be in a museum or to be at a vintage store, um, and that is the clothes clothes of wealthy people and specifically of wealthy teenage girls because that tends or like young 20 somethings because that tends to be the time when you have the most like big life events where you would have a specific outfit that would be worn only a few times and also like i mean i was very teenage girls tend to be much more slender than they are when they're older, right? You have, like, in your mid-20s, you know, the your body changes again and weight redistributes. And it's, yeah, like, Yeah, and, like, your body I'm does really supposed to change have. over yeah. the years. So, like, the clothing that we have concrete examples of are often a lot smaller and or there's the misconceptions of how corsetry works and these sorts of things. And so we're looking at just a waist size or just a waist size in comparison to full, full skirts and being like, wow, look how tiny they were. Or the fact that people think that you couldn't doctor photos in early periods. Like you can definitely make people look much smaller than they were in an early photograph. So there's all of these things. Um, So we really have to look at, the discussion like one at other extant articles of clothing that really show that like people's size like hasn't changed that much like people are significantly taller than they were 200 years ago but by significantly i mean like an inch or two in on average so like uh, that's not really a huge difference well and that like we need to look at as we're going through this, we're going to show you sort of how we can know how people are conceiving of what is beautiful and how that lines up with the reality of people existing in the period um, and how that's affecting their lives. And so it's looking at the way that we're talked to through media and through magazines and through whatever. We can do that same sort of thing for the past and see like what is culturally happening there and how these ideas about what's beautiful have changed and shifted and what value we can give to those conceptions in each of these periods as we look at them. Um, okay, so I think I'm going to take it way back. Yeah, those back to, to the you know, ancient <laughs> civilization. So let's go back. To the beginning. Get in our time machine. We're back in, like, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, uh, Egypt, Mesopotamia, (laughs) like, ancient civilizations. You look at the depictions of women. Nobody is Mm -hmm. super, super skinny. Like, in the classical world, there is basically... And an idea of, you know, proportionality is what matters. There isn't this huge emphasis on being super, super thin. Um, and, and I am going to say that historically, just this carries across basically all 
eras before about the 1700s, being really, really thin either meant that you were sick or that you were very poor and couldn't afford food. That That's it. It was yeah. not seen as aesthetically pleasing. So, you know, that's a big difference to the way that we view very, very thin people now. And, you know, you look at what the idealized aesthetic is mm -hmm. in, you know, you can look at Greek statues or, you know, Roman statues, murals at the time. Most people are sort of, uh, again, it's very much this idea of being yeah. proportional. There's this idea of you're not supposed to be too thin, you're not supposed to be too heavy, you're supposed to be in this, like, middle ground. And particularly yeah. for women, there's an emphasis on, you know, being sort of soft and having these curves and looking, you know, <laughs> as compared to men who are supposed to be more like, you know, a little, a little more yeah. jacked, a little more muscular, whereas women are supposed to be sort of mm -hmm. soft and squishy. And, no. you know, you look at statues like Venus, right? She's not super super thin she has these sorts of you know you look at a lot of it they'll will have like visible rolls on their stomach and like thick thighs and that sort of thing so it's very much yeah i you know what what we would think of as probably like a more average body today and this really does carry over into the middle ages as well mm -hmm. this Obviously, depending on where exactly you are, there's slight variation, but overall the idea remains the same, that the idea yeah. is you're going to be well-proportioned. You're supposed to be in moderation. Um, really, some of the fashions change in terms of what is going to be emphasized versus de-emphasized, so... In a lot of the, you know, yeah. you look at a lot of paintings from the Middle Ages, it looks like the women have very kind of flat chests. And that's because it's seen as this sort of modesty thing, right? Like you would have quite, like you, you could have quite um, like tight, not lacing yet mm -hmm. in some of these paintings, but more of... You know, you, you would wear some sort of tight undershirt, basically, as like somewhat of a support garment, right. or um, in some cases, they're wearing very, very loose clothes, so you can't see the figure at all. And the idea is this like modesty about it. And it's not really until you hit maybe more like the you know, 15th and 16th centuries, where then it's the same body shape is still sort of expected which again especially for women you are supposed to be sort of soft and curvy but with the introduction of more laced garments like stays um, there does become more of an emphasis on sort of a conical figure or something that looks sort of like what we would think of as more of an hourglass like basically the bust gets a little more pronounced now that you have more like lacing to give that shape rather than sort of hiding your right, shape because the the first example of stays which is an early form of corsetry 
Yes. Not a corset as we think of it, but like an early form of corsetry. That's from like 1430s, right? The Vienna yeah. stays. Um, which, yeah, have structure to them. They're normally like the early, early ones are, are very starched fabrics. They don't actually have boning in them yet, but they're like very stiff, heavily layered fabric that are laced at the at the back um, so that it's supporting the bust onto more of the body rather than right. shoulders um, or your back like if you're not wearing any sort of support garment so it, it helps keep your posture up it helps with like lifting it's essentially like a back support that helps keep like your bust close closer to your body so that you can actually like move around more freely in fact is <laughs> yes the purpose for them um, yeah and i think that's a, a big thing to remember through really everything before you know the six the, the 16th and early 17th centuries is there's really not a huge concern in terms of oh well your body is too fat or it's too thin it's more so a question of how you are dressing and presenting yourself yeah. and it is a question of more so looking at well are you are you dressed modestly are you covered yeah. in the appropriate ways and are you adhering to the correct sort of shape for your garments which yeah. again that anybody can wear the correct shape of clothes right mm -hmm. like there are times where it's fashionable to have quite loose garments with maybe just a belt at the mm -hmm. waist to sort of give a little more structure and then you know, again, as you said, by the 14th century in some areas, and then by the 15th century, it's really spread out, it becomes much more fashionable to have more of a, um, you know, supported bust line by wearing these early forms of corsets, early forms of, um, you know, they were called cote hardies, um, mm -hmm. where it's, that's another thing that comes out of the late Middle Ages, where it's sort of a very structured dress. Um, they're also yeah. called kirtles in different yeah. contexts. It's the idea of a very structured, heavy dress that has lacing. So yeah, again, you can lace it into this sides. sort of... Right. And that can give you that preferred shape that would be, mm -hmm. you know, a little more close-fitting on the body and then loose skirts. But in any case, again, the emphasis isn't, oh, how, how thin you are. It's a question of getting that right proportion. And the yeah. right sort of proportion of floofy skirt to tighter <laughs> bodice or loose bodice, tight belt, loose skirts. Yeah. And I also want to add that this idea of beauty was not limited to only white women. Because this is where... Mm -hmm we are going to bring in some of the racist aspects of our modern <laughs> beauty ideals. Yes. And a lot of what we're talking about from here on comes from Sabrina Strang's Fearing the Black Body. It's an amazing work. Everyone it's should read it. Brilliant. I loved it. But uh, it's, yeah, it's incredible. So essentially what's happening is when you look at, say, the Middle Ages, early modern period, 
black and brown women are very much included in this paradigm of beauty. You can find women who are painted with, who are black and who are brown in medieval paintings who are depicted as being beautiful, as being, you know, either whether they are alone in the painting or in some cases the statue or whether they are depicted with, you know, women who uh, in our modern conceptions would be considered white. They are still shown as being beautiful, as having Mm -hmm. beautiful bodies, beautiful hair, beautiful faces. Um, I think as uh, Sabrina Strings discusses at length, there is a huge trend in the 16th century of the African Venus, where Mm -hmm. it's paintings and statues made of Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, as an African woman. And this is very popular around the Mediterranean, particularly in Italy. They go absolutely nuts for it. So there isn't this idea necessarily that white, fair skin is the only way to be beautiful. That's the preference in some cases, but at at this point, having fair skin is really more about being rich because it means that you're wealthy enough that you don't have to go and like work in the fields so if you're a peasant woman you also aren't reaching that like fair skinned beauty even if you would you know again in today's conceptions be thought of as white because that's not what they were talking about it's about being so wealthy that you can sit in your castle all day and never get any sort of tan or freckles. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but um, because, I mean, if we're looking at the Mediterranean in particular, we're looking at, like, the Italian Renaissance in this period, and what... So this is written in, like, Italian or or Latin, depending on who's writing it, Um so various Italian right. dialects or Latin. And like the conception of what we have like translated as fair often isn't just talking about the color of your complexion, but like the quality of your complexion, like whether or not you're getting enough vitamins yes. <laughs> and rest mm-hmm. and like not getting like sun damage or dryness or wind damage that like your skin looks like dewy and young and soft is like that sort of thing because i know that at least in the later italian renaissance there was a lot of talk about like you didn't want to be too pale you know you that yes. was a sign of sickness and stuff as well. Like being too, like I'm definitely too pale <laughs> for them. So like there's too pale and then there's like too Same. dark. Everything was like, you want to sort of be medium. <laughs> it's very like the same. Yes. Like, there's very much this conception. Yeah. There, there is this conception of, uh, again, going back to this idea of moderation, like yeah. everything is supposed to be sort of in the middle. And yes, definitely depending on where you are yeah. living, it it does vary region to region. Um, but I will say fair in many cases is often used more so, as you said, it can mean that you just have a good complexion. It can mean that you have a light complexion. It can even just mean beautiful it can be used just as you know fair of face would mean that you're you you have a pretty face 
Um, so it, it's a word that has different meanings in different contexts. And I think the other thing is, again, you can see writings from the time and paintings of the time into the 16th century where women with very dark skin, like, and, and black hair are, again, they're portrayed as beautiful as, mm-hmm. you know, in different cases as uh, personifications of, you know, goddesses or of mm-hmm. different, you know, nymphs from Greek and Roman mythology when that becomes super fashionable again in the 16th century. So, you know, we, we have this conception that everybody only thought that like super, super white skin was nice. And it's like, no, that was really more of a status thing in certain parts of Europe because it it literally just meant that you were a woman who was rich enough to not go outside. That's it. That doesn't mean that nobody else could be thought of as beautiful. And or Um, like you see this really kind of fever pitch with... Yes, I I was going to say, we really hit the fever pitch of this in Elizabethan England, where there is this obsession with how white the queen's skin is, because she's painting it with lead paint (laughs) to look white as a sheet. But again, this is a very, um, you know, this is reserved for a very, very wealthy set of people. Mm -hmm. It's, again, the idea that she is so well off that she never has to, you know, go anywhere without protection from the sun. That's what it's showing it's not about this idea of it, it it's not as um there isn't that racialized element quite yet yeah however however we'll get there <laughs> then <laughs> we're getting there right now where we go from a much more um sort of fluid conception of beauty to we start changing this way of seeing things in the early 17th century. Mm -hmm. By the turn of the 17th century, black women are being represented in certain artwork and in certain pieces of writing as being called little, as being small, Mm -hmm. Um, which at the time was seen as a bad thing because women who, again, they, they don't have the racial, like, quote unquote, science yet, but the people who we would call white women today were put on a pedestal as being sort of tall and plump and curvaceous. Mm-hmm. And that was the ideal mm-hmm. versus portraying their black women as counterpoints who were actually little and small. Um, you can actually see this again, Sabrina Strings. Dudes. Great job of going through all this, looking at the work of Rubin, where in his earlier paintings, you have these depictions of beautiful black women. Mm-hmm. And there are also depictions of beautiful white women who in his works are all, you know, Rubenesque figures. <laughs> they are plump, they are curvy, but they're yeah. all portrayed as beautiful. And then you look at some of his later works when you see black and white women and how they're depicted, it's very different because in his later works, you can see that these ideas are are um, kind of 
influencing his artwork where suddenly in his later works the white women are still being portrayed as stately and you know curvaceous and beautiful flowing hair and the black women in his paintings are suddenly being drawn as thin and small and having short hair and it's treated rather than being equals in beauty they are shown as being foils to each other and this all has to do with the slave trade so basically as the slave trade is spreading in the early 17th century there is this kind of proto-racist system that's taking hold again they don't have race science as such yet but they're basically it spread this general propaganda that black people are unattractive and hypersexual and you know they are just not as good as people with lighter skin because you know obviously the the people who are from Europe are beautiful and chaste and well proportioned and it's basically this idea of using a like pseudoscience pseudo naturalist argument for why slavery is okay because uh, again i mean slavery had basically been done away with by the year 1000 in europe mm-hmm. so now they have to re-justify why it's okay to own human beings and specifically for at the same time that this the type of chattel slavery that is developing so we're talking about like you will be enslaved forever yeah and your children will right, also what, be yeah and your children forever. will be enslaved so yeah. that is a a type of slavery that is developing for the first time in yeah. this period and the justification for why those people and all of their descendants should be slaves i mean it has you have to have a reason for that right uh, yeah not that you like, need to any of them make are up valid, a justification like, basically yeah no for your society to continue no, to function like, you have to have a reason to tell people this is yeah. why this is happening yeah at the same time that this sort of proto-racial ideas are taking off in the early 17th century. We also see this idea forming that thinness is good and a sign of morality and intellect, but in men, not in women. Because this is an enlightenment idea that, you know, a man should be rational and he should eat exactly as much as he needs and drink exactly as much as he needs and that gives him the ability and the time to just focus on his intellectual pursuits. Because obviously, you know, the men who are eating lots and drinking a lot and having a lot of sex and getting fat, well, they must be stupid and not intellectual because they're wasting their time on these hedonistic pleasures rather than, you know, doing just enough to sustain the body so that they can keep pursuing the intellect of the mind. Uh, and really this does this conception come from the enlightenment idea of like the duality where like so you have your body and then you have your soul and the soul is supposed to be higher and so you should be spending all your time and so like a a true truly enlightened man would be able to ignore the like baser needs in order to fulfill his soul 
Yes, very much so. And this, I mean, we have these ideas stemming like even from classical and they're developed in the medieval period. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that there are humans and that human beings are, you know, we have souls, we have rationality, Mm -hmm. we can think, we can reason, and we are above animals. So an animal eats without restraint. An animal drinks without restraint. Animals have sex whenever they want. But humans, you know, and and that is a big part of things like um, fasting in the Middle Ages or the emphasis on, you know, you abstain from sex on certain days and you can only have sex with the person you're married to because it it's literally a you are behaving like an animal if you, you know, are gluttonous or if you are you know, having having sex with a lot of people. That's right. seen as not behaving like a proper human. So this idea kind of gets ratcheted up in the Enlightenment. Right. Particularly with regards to eating and drinking, because now, it, as you said, it's this idea that if I'm truly rational, I should essentially be able to ignore my my base body needs and should be able to focus on my mind and my soul, which are completely separate things from our bodies but women were excluded from this oh oh yeah women are women are essentially excluded from i mean (laughs) well it's it's not so much that women aren't people so much as it's like you know women are we're all kind of a little dim a little foolish yes we can never truly be enlightened or rational (laughs) beings we're just led astray by our womanly emotions so You know, and I think that coupled with the fact that, I mean, realistically, if you are a woman, you are most likely, you know, you're most likely being pregnant quite often. You're nursing, like, there are just much more, there's much more physicality that is demanded of you. And it's not really realistic to say, oh, yes, women should be super thin and skinny. And I think it's also still just very much a, a an aesthetic thing. It's right. still, at this point, we are still seeing women as the ideal is to be tall, plump, proportionate, curvy, kind of soft. That sort of thing is the ideal. Right. Whereas this sort of keeps going through the 17th century, where by the end of it, this sort of idea of the thin scholarly man who who just barely sustains <laughs> his mortal flesh so he can focus on the pursuit of knowledge is kind of ingrained in people's minds. And I, I will say there was also pushback against this idea from men saying like, oh, I don't know about this, about, you know... Maybe this is unhealthy for these men to be so, you know, to eat and drink so little that they're barely sustaining themselves. But that's, (laughs) you know, that's sort of the, this idea has already taken hold by the end of the 17th century. And by the end of the 17th century, some of these thin scholarly men have invented racial categories. (laughs) Yay! Now, I want to be clear, the word race has been used since at least the early Middle Ages, maybe earlier, to describe different groups of people. But it was not about skin color. Like, 
yeah. the way that they are using race prior to, you know, the late 17th century would would be more like how we use um like ethnicity you know ethnicity yeah yeah like you would say like oh the the anglo-saxon race or the the ethiopian race right, right? like it's a group of people and it would refer not only to skin color but to sort of a shared homeland and cultures and traditions and you know, mm-hmm. again, it would be closer to what we would think of as ethnicity today. Yeah. But they start doing their quote-unquote science in the late 17th century, saying that, you know, people from hot climates, well, they, being in such a hot climate makes you lazy and inactive, and all you want to do is lay around and eat all day, and that's why people who are from hot climates are are fat and lazy, but people from cold climates, like me, the English man writing this in my cold climate, we are clearly superior because we are from cold places, and the cold makes us hardy and strong and industrious, right. which is obviously ridiculous. Yeah. But again, these new sciences are then used to categorize people into races. Um, And this is used then to justify slavery because you can say, ah, yes, well, these black people are uh, because of just, you know, naturally they are worse than us northern European Mm -hmm. types. So it's, it's fine that we, you know kidnap people and force them to work for us forever and steal their children. It's fine. <laughs> this is fine. Yeah, definitely. Not. And I also want to do away with the myth that everyone was just chill and okay with this the whole time because even at the time there were already people saying, "No, this is very dumb. This is very bad." <laughs> right. No. Uh you know, I just really want to say this is not a, oh, yes, it's a product of your time thing. Like, no, you essentially have anti-slavery yeah. like notions from the second this starts right. up. But uh, again, you basically have from the late 17th century through the 18th century, mm-hmm. more of these ideas kind of piling up that... You know, this idea that there are separate races of people and that people who fall into the white category are meant to be tall and well-proportioned and intellectually superior to people who have dark skin. And when you reach kind of the early 19th century, I would say is when this really comes to a fever pitch with... Uh, Sarah Mm -hmm. Bartman, who was put on display as the hot and taut Venus. Um, That's actually now would be, I mean, it's, it was used as a derogatory term. She was a black woman from South Africa, from the Khoi Khoi group of people. Mm -hmm. And essentially, I'm not, there's, it's a long story, but she was enslaved from childhood. Um, At the time when she was reaching maturity, she was owned by a man named Hendrick, who then signed a contract with an Alexander Dunlop, 
who essentially became her handler and put her on display in London and later around England. And he promoted her as basically exotic and a curiosity, but also as something grotesque. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was kind of a, a early freak show in a lot of ways. Right. And, Essentially, what people were really fascinated by was her voluptuous figure, especially because she had a large bottom, basically. (laughs) And she was treated very badly. She was put on display and made to, you know, basically sing and dance and perform as a, you know, they, they treated it as like a, here's this exotic specimen from a faraway land. Was really awful and disgusting. There's in and uh, essentially what happens is you get crowds and crowds of people coming to see her and look at her and touch her because it's seen as this like oh this is like the the quintessential um, you know what what people from sub-Saharan Africa look like right like this is you know this sort of not this um right so it's sort of uh, she's also seen as this sort of scientific specimen because it's seen as like oh here is the perfect example of this this other race of people and And like what's wrong with them yes and and what's wrong with them and how clearly they are inferior to us Mm -hmm. and there's already writings at the time, you know, saying, well, you know, our women here in England are, you know, quite tall and stately and fine and, you know, slender as compared to this person, Sarah, who is, you know, obviously too voluptuous. And it's because she comes from a hot climate and is lazy and eats too much. And that's why she has, you know, a body that looks like this instead of being more slender and less curvy, basically. And in 1814, Dunlop and Hendrick are both dead by then. And she ends up going to France with a man named Henry Taylor, where she is again put on exhibition essentially as a scientific specimen, um, where she is promoted as being evidence of race science. Um, She ends up dying likely of some sort of inflammatory disease. It's uncertain what exactly it was, but it may have been pneumonia or Mm -hmm. smallpox. It's not really recorded much at the age of 26. Um, They actually had her skeleton and body cast on display at the Natural History Museum at Angers in France. Jesus. Uh, until 2002, when they, yeah, until France finally agreed to allow her remains to be repatriated to her homeland in the Gamtus Valley on May 6, 2002. Wow. Yeah, it's really horrific. Um, but that's what I would argue is when this idea reaches a fever pitch, this idea that white women are tall and thin and black women are 
you know, lazy and fat and bad gets into the mainstream idea. And it has really catastrophic consequences for the way that people are viewed, basically, and the way that bodies become moralized and the way that it really ends up feeding into these ideas of of racializing um right. you know the size of your body and and this idea of moralizing um having fat on your body basically right should we see what's going on in america I think I think we should see what's going on in America. I think I've sufficiently shown that Europe went absolutely buck wild and we're all terrible people. So, oh, don't worry. Cuz the US <laughs> oh, and North America in general has its own horrifying Yeah, I assume of this. that they're giving France and England a run for their money. They're definitely trying. So, um I'm going to start a little behind the 19th century just to like give us a sort of context of where things come up, and then I'll sort right. of blow through the 19th century and talk about the 20th century real quick. Sounds good. Um, excellent. So, so as we've talked about like multiple times on this podcast, every time I start something about North America, we have to talk about Protestants. Oh, damn it! <laughs> Which always sounds like I'm, I'm You're just, just roasting like, oh, yourself. <laughs> yeah, because as especially if you listen to our our last episode, uh, which featured just Protestants, <laughs> there's no Sorry, Catholic to balance you out. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we have to like sort of start with the Protestant Reformation a little bit, where a lot of things that before had just been seen as a fact of material life become moralized. Um, this has to do with dress, with just like with everything, everything that could signal that you are a horrifying sinner became a sign that you are a horrifying sinner. Like if, if there was anything at all, that could stand you out from a crowd. Um, but fatness was one of the major ones. It was seen as a moral failing, right? And this, yes. again, goes to this like later enlightenment idea of you were unable to control your bodily urges. And if that sounds weirdly sexual, like, it definitely is. Yeah, um, there's definitely there a lot were... of overlap I've been noticing between sex and eating and drinking because all three of those are yes. seen as the animal part of your body in this yeah. like european conception of it that those are the bad things that need to be controlled yeah and i mean doctors are suggesting essentially bulimia or anorexia um eating and then purging um diets that consist entirely of drinking milk Ugh. um yeah, like essentially not eating anything and just drinking a lot of various kinds of milk. So like swap out, have goat's milk in the morning and then cow's milk in the evening and like just eat, drink milk, um, which obviously will not like sustain a full human body because yeah, it's that also baby animals. It also <laughs> sounds like actual hell because I hate milk. I do too. So um, gross. 
<laughs> Oat milk for the win. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even with these weird diets, so like thinness was seen as beautiful, but also there's this weird thing where like men can be physically ugly and it's seen as the sign of intelligence as they don't care about their body. They don't care about like what their hair is looking like. Um, but if a woman is unkempt or unattractive, then clearly she is evil. Um, that's like a, a weird Puritan double standard as well, which leads into sort of the, as the 18th century rolls around and you have, you know, the sort of the end of the 18th century happens we get the cotton gin, the absolute height of chattel slavery happens along with the height of immigration to the um, like eastern seaboard of North America. Uh, so you have all of this immigration, um, chattel slavery, and the development of what is called um, race science. So there's this... Yep. Uh, discussion in almost all forms of media of white people only being quote-unquote anglo-saxon so specifically from the isle of britain not all the so-called british isles but specifically england possibly parts of scotland though depending on where what time period we're looking at like if you're from the highlands probably not uh definitely not irish definitely not welsh you definitely don't have like really dark hair or a darker complexion like celts right out um the only good white people are from this specific island um and that those are the people who are really american um so any of the first nations people definitely would uh, have an issue with this but the people who are supposed to be in this quote-unquote new world are from this one tiny island off the coast of Europe. Um, And there's a very specific idea of what those women and men look like, and they are very, very white, very tall, and slender. Um, And very quickly, though, throughout the 18th century, this conception sort of starts to change depending on who is coming yeah, to no. the States. So, right, early yep. 19th century, we have the like extreme immigration from Ireland with the famine, and Irish are not white. By the time of the Civil War, the Irish are white. This is a, it's a whole huge thing, fascinating to study. There's a book about it, literally called How the Irish Became White. It's really good. Um, but once, once there's no longer this massive influx of Irish to like New York, Boston, Halifax, um, sort of that whole East Coast of North America, the Irish and quote unquote Celts meaning everyone from these sort of Celtic islands are able to be seen as white. And then what becomes white is what they term the Nordic peoples, which doesn't have anything to do with Norway, but is just all of Northern Europe, all of Northern Europe, anywhere that's not Mediterranean or Eastern Europe, Northern France, Germany, (laughs) Eastern Europe doesn't count as human. 
Germany. Yeah, you can't really go any further than like Finland is like no. Yeah, not Finland really. is like already not <laughs> so, on. Like, you could be you from. You can be from Germany. You could be from Norway, Germany, but like any further east, and it's no. Any further south than Germany, no. Maybe Swiss, depending on what kind of Swiss you are. You know, like, yeah. it's that kind of thing. It's very, very specific and weird. Um, and this coincided with the drop off in Irish immigration, the rise in Italian immigration, and people from Eastern Europe, specifically people escaping pogroms. Yeah. Um, so that's a whole thing. Um, and so this idea of what is beautiful becomes specifically about this race science-based eugenics movement where white people, that's where this term Aryan comes about, this like Caucasian term where somehow the best white people originated in the Caucasus Mountains, but also... You can't currently be from the Caucasus no, no. Mountains. No, insanity. Because you can't be Eastern Europe. It's very confusing to like try and riddle out exactly how they're... But, um, so beauty had to do with this ideal of what the very white Nordic, specifically woman, looked like. Because like there wasn't a whole lot of talk about men specifically, other than that they were white men and theoretically had a bunch yes. of money. So tall, very slender, very pale. Um, and the American state, specifically the U.S. state, starts um, sanctioning eugenics laws. Um, these were called miscegenation. I never pronounce that word. Miscegenation. 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 Where essentially white people could not create a family with anyone else and this included other Europeans yep. um, so like a person whose family was from England could not like marry an Italian or d a Jewish person or you know d heaven forbid d a black person yep. you know it was like awful and this was part of this like progressive era which doesn't sound how we talk about progressivism no. now <laughs> but the progressive era was very much about like ending poverty and all these things but a lot of those conceptions have to do with eugenics where poor people are poor because there's something wrong yep. with them um, they might be poor because they are a specific race or because you know that race is prone to mental illness or other kinds of physical illness or they're just fat and lazy like these kinds of things and that if we don't let them breed yeah. this is so awful this whole episode is going to be awful <laughs> I hate talking about this. if we don't let them breed then we'll get rid of the poor by just there won't after a few generations there just won't be anymore um yeah, so that was a thing. And, like, there's this whole talk. This is where the concept of, like, the American melting pot yeah. happens. But it's not a melting pot of, like, all of the races. Nope. It's all the different kinds of skinny white yes. people. Um, so, like, oh, the American melting pot has created the greatest race of people. 
meeting this like made up Nordic person that is like fifteen different European cultures like smushed into one skinny white girl. Um, and this is also where <laughs> this is also where we then get like the Gibson girl. So we're we're moving into the twentieth century now. So um, Gibson's a illustrator. Uh, illustrator and he makes all of these illustrations of women essentially playing sports or driving cars or like being this like you know beautiful but badass american girl and she's like kind of athletic she's very tall but she's got this tiny waist big hair you know, she's the and the the big 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 uh dark hair um and she's the first person she's the first image that really becomes a sort of trans-American uh, beauty. Because also throughout this time, like while this is developing, this idea of like this very, very white person, the beauty standards are still slightly different based on region. Um, so in the North, being very, very thin is very popular. Um, again, that's where all the like Puritans were. In the South, there is still more of this idea of a classical beauty, but being very fair. Right. So you can be a little more squishy in the South um, and be considered beautiful. Um, but when the Gibson girl arrives, it's sort of like, I think partially because of the technology of the period. Right. You can right? spread things getting faster. these mass-produced newspapers across and the the ladies books are becoming yeah, national magazines um, so the ladies journals and magazines are becoming more like nationalized as opposed to like right. regional um so you get the gibson girl becomes a beauty uh, of all of america this idea of what the anglo-saxon or aryan idea of this thin uh but capable American woman. Right. Um, and as the 20th century moves on, there's a few other sort of of these illustrators who become really famous. Um, one person focuses specifically on blonde women who are kind of neurotic for some reason. Um, and that becomes an ideal for a while. Um, of course, by the 1920s, the Gibson girl is no longer doesn't quite she's a little too athletic a little too tall and um busty yeah uh, by the 1920s everyone wants to be super super thin um and this comes about because by uh spelled by wrong <laughs> by 1910 uh scales started to be available in pharmacies and public spaces like scales for weighing humans yep. and this was such a thing for me to think about because, like, of course, everyone didn't just know their no. weight. You didn't have scales you could put a person on just like around. Doctors didn't talk yeah, about weight. Fun fact: like, that used to be like you know, it was a joke. It was like you would make jokes about the con. Like there are like jokes about the concept of like weighing people like when you go into i want to say 16th century yeah. netherlands and england they're like making fun of each other by saying things like oh yes like they over there like they weigh their women by the pound like they're so you know they want these like curvy women and it's like this like haha who would ever yeah. do such a thing <laughs> yeah exactly and uh but so like scales like start to become available in public spaces and then there's like the the 
because there's the traveling shows that are going around and people start doing that thing where it's like, I'll guess your weight. Yep. Um, which like now I like, I'm always like, why was that ever a thing? But it's because like, this was a like new sort of public innovation. And then within only like three years, uh, small scales that could be kept in the home become available. And so, um, by the 1920s, the like personal scale is a feature of the American home. And it's like, now you could quantify what the ideal body was. Now it could be medicalized. And instead of like physicians doing studies and realizing that like people with heavier bodies, it's causing medical problems. Mm -hmm. The, uh, Scales are invented, people become very interested in them, and then doctors start using that to say say things quantifiably about people's race. And that that actually originates with insurance companies. So yep. in the 1930s, people... Love BMI. <laughs> yeah. So by the 1930s, um, with, like, after the with like the the depression with these like issues with labor and all these things like health insurance starts to become like a concept of like oh like people should have some way to make sure that if they're like very very sick and can't work you know they're they can be supported and um the insurance companies hire all these statisticians to be like how can I determine if I actually want to take this person on? And then doctors also, because they can choose like just to deny someone as a patient. Do I want to take you on or are you not going to actually be able to pay me anything? And so these statisticians do like bonkers research where they start telling insurance companies that there are causal relationships between these things because they're looking at, well, people on the extremes of this weight scale tend to be have more medical problems which like that at best is a correlation right um yeah and so the idea of the normal weight becomes a thing and um doctors start telling everyone they should be like this normal weight and so you get all of these medicines that will either help you shed weight or gain it depending on what end of the scale you're on um and then oh, of yeah. course my favorite is all those insurance- vintage ads where it's like the boys wouldn't look at me because i was too skinny but then i took these weight gain pills and now i'm <laughs> yeah. voluptuous and perfect yeah and then or on the, the next alternative page where like, they're like but are you oh, too big yeah if if you're too fat here take some amphetamines <laughs> why not yeah. snort some coke um put an actual yeah. beef tapeworm inside your body that's a fun fact that was a fun weight yep. loss trick at the <laughs> early 20th century just ingest yeah. a tapeworm it'll be fine yeah. Sorry, I, I interjected. And of course, but no, you're fine. Just that's nuts. It's, <laughs> it's uh, utterly bananas the things that people are willing to do. And all of these things are also showing up in women's magazines. Yep. Where women are being told how to be good women. Mm-hmm. Um, and initially, the women's magazine, um, it's the, the, we actually talked about the same 
woman before who like sort of created this concept of the women's magazine sarah josepha hale yep. she was the one who wanted to have a thanksgiving hey and look like, at uh, that you win some you lose some folks <laughs> sarah josepha hale um she didn't want to have anything about fashion or clothing or aesthetics in these magazines, but um, a bunch of dudes decided that's what women should be caring about, and so they bought her magazine from her, turned, converged it with Godie's Ladies Book, and uh, made it all about how you can be the perfect skinny wife. So that's a thing. Uh, I Obviously, that was a massive reduction of that story well, yeah. if somebody actually studies her, like... It was more complicated than that. But we can also talk about um, a little bit more about how these things become medicalized. This concept becomes medicalized as a, as a justification. Um, and to do that, we're going to talk about Kellogg, um, oh. the cereal guy. Oh, my my favorite food maker <laughs> of the 20th yes, century. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, gosh. Um, and in order to talk about Kellogg, we have to talk about another big protestant movement because we have to talk about the second great awakening love it love that it's just second great awakening. so the second great awakening is this period specifically in america but it does like sort of seep into europe a little bit um of evangelists this is where the like evangelical movement starts the the with the tent preachers <laughs> With the tent preachers, where they're like these guys going around with these tents, yelling about fire and brimstone in places. Yes, yeah, yelling about fire and brimstone in places where there wasn't necessarily an a studied clergy member available. Right, so they start sort of in the deep south, out west, you know, spreading toward cities, and it becomes this big reform movement. Um, and part of that, one of the congregations that gets sort of swept up with it is the Seventh-day Adventist that Kellogg and his wife, because he has a few in succession, they all die of like medical complications. Ironic. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, they're part of this. And one of the things that becomes a massive part of this is that they have you have to reform the American culture in order to perfect the quote-unquote American read white race, right? Right. Um, and a lot of that has to do with food and drinking mm -hmm. and masturbation. Yeah, he's the one who um, really popularizes so male circumcision in the U.S. So that's yeah. a fun fact. Yeah, so that and cereal. Yeah, because uh, you should be vegetarian. Yes. They wanted everyone to be a vegetarian, and they were like, in this early 20th century America, there's not enough vegetarian options. They create, He creates soy milk also, first people to create soy milk. Um, but essentially what he does is he combines these Protestant ideals um, from the like 17th century uh, with these racialized eugenics movement and the politics of American exceptionalism. And also added in these like weird 18th century medical ideas that of like a hydropathy, where taking baths and drinking a lot of water will cure like anything. And ironically, for part of America, 
it actually is a hydropathy is a really great thing for them to cling on to because there was just a bunch of cholera epidemics happening in various American cities. Um, And by being like, well, if we're drinking a lot of clean water, then you'll be healthier. So they end up cleaning the water and creating clean water standards and like renovating sewer systems and all these things, which ends up getting rid of a lot of cholera. Also, um, these temperance movements in certain areas help with gout and other afflictions that come from excess drinking. Right. Um, just having too many, much sugars yeah. from alcohol in your blood. So that is actually helpful, but in the grand scheme of things, isn't really a thing. Um, and they really do see sickness as a punishment for sins. Um, because in a lot of these movements, specifically in this period of Seventh-day Adventism, the idea was that your actual physical body would be taken to heaven. And so you had to perfect it in order to get there. By perfecting your body, you can perfect your soul. And so Kellogg um, went and became a doctor, even though they were all like very skeptical of uh, medical professionals again, because of the health crisis that happened in his family, and he made the sanitarium where he decided to use food as medicine, which for a lot of people is not a great idea uh, because it can definitely lead to eating disorders. But whatever. Um, So he started feeding people a lot of granola and soy milk and these cereals and became wildly popular. The original soy boy. Yes, this is where Kellogg's came from. <laughs> this is where the company came from. And somebody who had stayed at his sanitarium and ate all of his breakfast cereal um, also created um, some other cereals. This was Post. So if you know Kellogg's or Post cereals, that's where these came from. Um, but a lot of this, uh, these ideas that he was sort of because he came like he became like this insanely famous doctor where like the American Medical Association was formed around this time and he was all over their publications and essentially it was just like he didn't want to like save any non-white people and was like sort of particularly misogynistic and like the movement that came from this is particularly misogynistic because they start talking about like why that like shaming women on both ends like that women shouldn't be fat because that's a sign of moral failing but also if then you're too skinny and you develop a health issue because of it like that's also a moral failing that women are getting smaller because they're not taking the time to eat or prepare food because they're like out in the workplace we really Um, can't win and that women's fashions yeah, that women's fashions were incredibly detrimental to their health this is where all the lies about how corsets uh, torture devices and everyone was torturing themselves with corsets and it's like <sighs> please stop also there was the 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 inside all of this there were again the very specific parameters around who you can have sex with so uh this movement was also where this bonkers idea came from that if a white woman had a child with a black man all of her children after that even if they had a white father would also be black sounds reasonable to me you know 
I don't know. Like, by having sex with a black person, somehow you are forever corrupted. I mean, corrupted at all is bad, but also that, like, now it's this whole taint on generations of people to... It's bananas. Um, And also that uh, feminists are to blame for all of women's physical problems. Um sounds sounds legit yep yeah it just it it becomes this like very using strange quasi medical science and what uh foucault calls biopolitics um to control people by controlling their bodies um and this continues to this day um at the end of fearing the black body shrinks right shrinks talks about um a cnn article about the obesity epidemic that features um a like larger black woman having her waist measured by a slender white doctor and the article goes on to talk about these studies that say that like black women are the fattest of all the demographics in America and that they are going to die because of it and all of this stuff and um, the image that goes that image of that woman and the doctor um, neither of them have heads so it's another one of those like the headless woman trope um, where it really is saying like black women are just their bodies and their bodies are a detriment to the American nation And it's, as usual, portraying this as individual moral failings. Yeah, individual moral failing. And also... Well, and also that, like, this is... It's a a crisis of public health that it is going to affect all of our... Everyone's access to healthcare and that the nation is going to fail because black women are fat. which... I don't think we should have to say uh, this, but it's which ridiculous. Doesn't, if you actually, yes, it, and if you actually look at the science, like while black women tend to have a higher BMI than some other groups, it is not anywhere near conclusive that this has any effect on their actual health, or that anyone's BMI actually has any effect on their actual health. It's like a whole... Yeah, again, the BMI is... the And Strings also yeah. goes in to talk about, like, how there is... How the... She goes into much more... You guys should... Everyone should just yes. read this book. It's great. Uh, but... Or anything that is talking about how these studies are conducted because the conflation of causality with correlation is bananas um but yeah this is i'm just hoping that we've made it pretty clear that this is racist aesthetic garbage and your body is perfect however it is and with whatever capabilities yep. it has. And really the only conclusive <laughs> things we have in terms of actual science about things that are healthy is uh, try to get enough sleep, drink water, uh, and what what is it? Like 
half an hour of moderate exercise like five times a week, which means like take a walk. Not or like walk to and from the grocery yeah. store. That does not like that that's about it. That's what we have that's conclusive evidence. That yeah, actually the, helps and like, at and all. That that moderate exercise yeah. really does depend on what your yes, body is. That's the other of. thing. Like right. what is moderate exercise for your yeah. body is the healthy amount of exercise. Yes. So if you're making exercise goals, like, oh, I feel really sluggish and tired all the time. I think that moving will help me feel more awake. Like it needs to be whatever is the a moderate amount of exercise for your body is the goal that you should set for yourself. You don't need to be doing some like crazy Instagram workout that's going to make you feel sicker in the yes. long run. Um, you also don't need to feel bad about what your body is capable yeah. of doing. I mean, any... As a person whose body doesn't work, I'm saying you don't know <laughs> No, feel you shouldn't. That. <laughs> and, like, any... Uh, again, in terms of, like, what actually is going to help with overall health is, you know, again, like, try to get some moderate movement in, drink water, mm-hmm. sleep, a- attempt to eat a vegetable. Mm-hmm. I, for one, have eaten at least one vegetable these past few days, so I'm quite quite proud of myself but like (laughs) yeah it's it's not this like con it yeah there was spinach on my pizza incredible 10 out of 10 (laughs) there were beets in my borscht i'm fine there we go that's the ultimate truly is borscht he'll cure anything yeah you don't have to (laughs) You don't have to lose weight to be healthy. You don't have to or to be yeah, beautiful or to be beautiful because it literally like they're exactly literally doesn't, aesthetic values matter. change all the time because your body is fine the way it is. If you have genuine concerns, yeah, go talk to a doctor if you're like Oh, I think so- like I'm in pain or something is wrong, but like again, it can even be an issue there because we know that doctors do tend to treat larger people badly because you know, they're more yeah. likely to just say, "Oh, well, you just have to lose weight." And it's like, but that doesn't actually make sense. So, caveat yeah. to yes, push back on that. Be like, "No, it's not the like you know, if you are having health concerns, like, don't... Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm not a medical doctor, but, like, also don't just take it lying down <laughs> if they're like, oh, well, you just need to lose 50 pounds. And it's like, hmm, I don't know, man. Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, what I'm taking yeah. from it. Also, that uh, a lot of these things are made to sell you things to make you feel bad that's what the magazines were for and it's also you don't have to buy things to be happy yeah and also (laughs) you you don't don't have to to, you know subscribe to these extremely racist beauty norms like that's the other thing is that it's all don't do it literally (laughs) all of it is racism and attempting to sell you things so just don't yeah. don't do that. Let's let that's our New Year's resolution this year. Devin is to stop <laughs> believing in racist beauty norms and stop 
buying things that are sold to us to try to, you know, make us feel like we're not okay the way we are. Yeah. That's, yeah. On that. I fully note. support this. Gonna write it on my calendar. That's, that's the, that's the Baba Yaga uh, detox cleanse routine. <laughs> Cleanse yourself of <laughs> cleanse yourself of and capitalism racism. and racist beauty Just norms. racism in general. Cleanse yourself of capitalism and racism. Detoxify your life. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're like we're recording this when we're what eight days into 2021. There's already been an attempted coup. Uh, someone. Yeah, it's everything is bonkers. Everything's nuts. But stay safe out there. Stay safe, y'all. Do the best you can. And just remember that you are beautiful no matter what size you are or what you look like. Because, you know, everybody, everybody looks different. And everyone's body's a little different. And that's good and okay. And we don't all have to be the skinny anglo-saxon <laughs> ideal woman <laughs> from 1901 yeah exactly and with that we're gonna say goodbye for now stay safe do good work <laughs>